Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Hey guys and gals, welcome to the Oklahoma Outdoors podcast brought to you by Arrowhead Land Company. Here you will be educated, entertained, and equipped to get more out of your outdoor experience. So hold on tight because here we go. What's up, folks? Welcome to this exciting episode of the Oklahoma Outdoors podcast. And I know what you're wondering, am I a dad yet? The answer to that question as of right now is no. Uh, When this episode comes out, we will be two days from our due date. Uh, So unless my wife goes into labor from the time I'm doing this intro to the time this episode comes out, I am not a father yet. If you're brand new to the podcast, welcome. My name is John. Uh, my wife's about to have a baby. I've been talking about it for, uh, well, technically nine months, but mostly the last few weeks here. Uh, so yeah, as of right now, no baby yet. Uh, my wife did have an appointment today, and baby's doing good. Mom's doing good. They told us if the baby has not been born by, I believe, July 4th, that they are probably going to look into inducing her. And so by the time, not this episode, but the next episode comes out, there's a very good chance that we could either be having a baby or had a baby in the process of having a baby. And so, yes, very, very excited. I've had several people over the last couple weeks ask me if I was ready. And whether I say yes or no, they basically tell me I'm not ready. Uh, So I feel pretty ready, but apparently I'm not ready. So uh, we are very excited. Like I said, baby's doing good. Mom's doing good. Uh, I'm going to keep pumping out these podcasts for a few more weeks. I have already recorded, I can't remember if I told you guys this or not, I've already recorded my uh, turkey hunting story to release that week that my baby's born, so that way I don't have to worry about you know scheduling a guest and editing everything. I already have that in my back pocket, uh, so if, you know, if we end up at the hospital, I can just send that out to Dan and get it sent off and not have to worry about it. So, so there will be no breaking content through this baby, hopefully, crossing my fingers. I don't have any plans of breaking up the content um but yeah so that's the plan right now with the baby uh if you guys could continue to pray for myself my wife our little girl and just keep us in your prayers we would really really appreciate that so thank you guys and uh yep we're gonna move on now so uh a couple exciting things real quick before we jump into this week's episode one uh, i got a call from amy with primetime taxidermy and i got to pick up my 2022 rifle buck uh, it looks fantastic. She did a great job. Uh, this fall, guys, I really encourage you, you know, if you shoot that monster buck you're after, look up Amy in Primetime Taxidermy. Send it her way. She'll do a great job. And uh, honestly, a very quick turnaround. Uh, I killed that buck, like, 
November 28th, something like that. What are we in June? Like six months, really not bad, uh, especially for shooting a buck kind of later in the year. Uh, so huge shout out to Amy and her taxidermy company. Uh, we did an episode with her a ways back. I couldn't tell you the number, but go back, listen to that episode. If you want to get to know her a little better and, and look her up, like I said, last quick little thing. I talked last week about my fishing trip to Texoma and I can finally raise my hands in triumph because I caught a striper. Just one. Uh, I went with my buddy Kelly. We each caught one and kind of two different methods. So that was pretty cool. Uh, it was it was crazy. Not the fishing, more the boats, <laughs> the experience. So I woke up at 4.30, uh, left the house, got there right at 6 o'clock, and we were like the fifth boat in line at the boat ramp. I think we counted 16 boats or something like that already out there, uh, and more came you know, while we were getting in and everything. So we started at the dam. Uh, we were doing topwater. I tried every kind of topwater lure there was. Uh, wasn't having any luck, and I noticed most of the people around us weren't fishing topwater. I was kind of surprised. Uh, a lot of them, I believe, were live bait fishing. Um, so, tried several different methods of topwater. Uh, wasn't catching any fish. I was seeing fish on the screen like I knew they were there, and so I picked up a different rod with a swim bait on it, and a uh, couple cast in, trying the swim bait, nothing, and then I had cast it out, and I was reeling it back in, and one hit the top just to my left. I mean, not far at all, like 15, 20 yards from the boat. And so I, I sped up my cat or my reeling to try to hurry, get the bait in, and, and uh, cast it over there. And about two seconds after I started reeling it faster, wham, got hit. And so uh, fish was on. I, I, I don't know if you could call it an accident or not. Like, I, I had purposely cast that direction. I was reeling it in. And I caught a fish. I was, you know, so I'm going to count it. I think it counts. Caught my first striper. Uh, and then we went to another location. And uh, it was very, very windy. And so we basically were doing kind of like a, a drift troll type thing. Um, I was looking on the fish finder. found a little point that extended out into the water. And we were basically just floating over that point. And uh, my buddy Kelly uh, hooked a, a striper. So... We both caught one. We accomplished our goal. I'm going to count that as a success. Monkey off the back. We did it. So, yeah. So, that was a lot of fun. Um, that's probably my last adventure for now until baby comes. Uh, going to be sticking around closer. I think this weekend we're actually going to hang out with my family a little bit and just kind of relax. Uh, I mentioned last week my wife is working a uh, like a little sports camp thing our church puts on. And so, she's going to be exhausted. Uh, so, yeah. We're probably just going to take it easy this weekend and then... Before we know it, baby's going to be here. So, so yeah, uh, not much for the intro this week. Um, just want to tell those few quick stories. We got a really, really cool episode this week. Uh, a guy named Eric reached out to me, actually, and uh, he's been fortunate enough to do quite a bit of hunting, uh, western hunting. Uh, he's gone to South America twice now, and basically he reached out to me and was like, hey, most people don't realize how doable these hunts are. And so we thought it was an awesome topic. And so Eric came on the show. Uh, he talks about you know living in New Mexico, hunting in New Mexico, uh, drawing once in a lifetime tags. Um, you know he had friends draw these tags, and so basically he's just encouraging people to to go for it. Essentially, you know, try it. Just because the odds are small doesn't mean it can't happen. Uh, and then also, like I said, he did some some bird hunting in South America. Sounds like some amazing trip. It's all stuff that I've heard of. Uh, it's stuff that I've dreamed about, but honestly, I haven't even really looked into it that much because I just assumed it was probably out of my budget. Um, but I think after you listen to this podcast, you're going to realize that it's a lot more doable than you think. So so that's what this po- this week's podcast 
podcast is about. I think you guys are going to enjoy it, and we're going to get into that right after this. If you're anything like me, you probably dream of owning your own piece of hunting or recreational land someday. If that's you, give one of the hardworking agents at Arrowhead Land Company a call. They will not only guide you through a complicated process, but also help you pick out the perfect property for your needs, whether that's hunting, farm and ranch, or just a little piece back in the woods where the worries of the world can't reach you. Arrowhead Land Company, hardworking agents for hardworking landowners. I was reading some research done by the Mississippi State Deer Lab this week, and they said there are basically two types of bucks, some that live almost their entire life in about 600 acres, and some that have multiple home ranges that vary by different times of the year. As I was reading this, I thought there was no better argument for Deer Lab than that research. With Deer Lab, you can track those bucks and their patterns to help you stay one step ahead of them. You can keep track of the year's worth of data and know if that buck is running around your property or if you need to just sit at home and wait a few weeks and not waste valuable time. Head over to DeerLab.com to learn more. In the intro to this very episode, I talked about heading out to the lake and how insanely crowded it was. It made me ready to jump online and head to PrivateWaterFishing.com to reserve my own private lake. Your membership gains you access to large private lakes all over Oklahoma and Texas. No boat? No problem. Several of these lakes have boats on site for your use. Worried about the cost? As part of the management practices for these lakes, some of them actually pay you for taking out smaller fish to help them manage for trophy bass. So there's no reason not to sign up for your membership today. Head to privatewaterfishing.com and check it out. Hey everybody, welcome to the show today and today I'm talking to Eric Bonicelli. Did I get the last name right? You did. Awesome, awesome. Well, Eric, I'm uh, pretty excited about this one. You actually reached out to me and uh, said you had some pretty exciting topics to talk about and and things that you're passionate about and you wanted to share. So I'm pretty excited for this one. But uh, real quick before we jump into that, why don't you just tell everybody a little bit, uh, you know, who you are, where you're from, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I uh, I'm from Kansas City originally, born and raised, and ended up going to. Utah on a swimming scholarship before moving to South Dakota for a couple of years, back to Kansas City where I was from for four years. And then the past three years, I've lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico before moving out here to Oklahoma City a couple months ago. And yeah, just born and raised in the Midwest and um, wanted to talk about how some of these Western hunts, these Western big game hunts are a little more accessible and affordable than people think. And also, a uh, couple of hunts in South America that are, you know, growing up in Kansas, thought they were non-existent or unobtainable, and they're actually very obtainable and affordable a lot of times. Awesome. That's uh, that's something I think a lot of people who listen to this are going to be pretty excited to hear about. And so, so yeah, we're going to take it just kind of one step at a time. And uh, so I think we'll start in uh, in New Mexico and. Uh, it sounds like you got a lot of hunting in while you were there, so I'm just kind of let you. Uh, I'm gonna let you take the lead and just kind of walk us through all the different hunts and and how they came about. Yeah, so New Mexico. When I moved out there, it would have been 2019, and I moved out just after you could apply for big game, and uh, the application period was over. So I sat out my first year. But the cool thing about New Mexico is they do not go off a point system like most of these other states, you know, Wyoming, South Dakota, Arizona, where it could take you 
20, 30 years to draw once of those, uh, one of those once in a lifetime elk licenses or tags or something like that. So moved out to New Mexico, was living in Albuquerque and was fortunate enough to have some friends who are also big into hunting and some family friends who have done a lot of these hunts in the past and ended up applying my first year for, uh, Oryx. I applied for bighorn sheep. I applied for Ibex, um, barberry sheep, uh, elk, deer, antelope, all those. And my first year was fortunate enough to draw my once in a lifetime Oryx hunt on the white sands missile range, which is an active missile range in Southern New Mexico. And probably one of the, the coolest hunts you can ever go on. In my opinion, it's just a old school sort of South Dakota, you know, road hunt where you can just hop out of your vehicle, shoot an Oryx. The missile range itself is about 32,000 square miles. So it's an extremely large missile range. And I was fortunate enough to draw my once in a lifetime, either sex Oryx tag my first year putting in. And I've had a couple other buddies also draw their first time putting in. And when you get drawn, you submit an application before, they let you know you draw, you fill out an application, and you can take up to three guests on this hunt. So it's you and three other people. And you send them your address, your driver's license, your hunter education number, social security, and they do a full background check on you on these Oryx hunts because you're entering an active missile range. There's literally unexploded ordinances out there. And they have these these Oryx rut year-round. So... Um, you know, you can go out any time of the year and there's about 8,000 Oryx on or around this, this active missile range. And so you'll get there on a Friday at about, I think, 10 a.m. is when they tell you to get there. And they do an orientation, tell you where you can and can't go, what you can and can't do. Um, uh, they can search your car if they want. And, yeah, basically for two hours, two hours plus, go over where you can go, what you can't do. There's a bunch of different canyons, they call them. There's Rhodes Canyon. Red Canyon is what I drew. And uh, then after, you know, that orientation, it's a Friday, they let you go, and it's a shotgun start. So the order you got in for that orientation, they take you out. They have uh, military police take you out and take you to the entrance of that that area, which is hundreds of square miles of hunting area and, uh, just say, go for it. So that was pretty cool experience. Just being able to do it for the first time. Mm -hmm. I did hire a guide for my first time. Um, but looking back on it now, and I've done two hunts since with, with friends that didn't have guides and those were both successful, but, uh, it was, you know, new to me. So I wanted to hire the guide. And the, the biggest thing was it's a 40 inch Oryx is like, there's only a couple of those shot per hunt. And that's, that's a big Oryx. And it's, you know, the mate measure of the antlers from the base to the tip. And that's each individual antler. So it'd be 40 inches on one side, could be 40 on the other, could be 20 on one side and 10 on the other, because the other side's broken off from, from fighting, running, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so that was, was a cool experience just being able to do that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I got to ask a couple questions real quick. So I've listened to the, the Meat Eater episode where they, I think he went last year. He had an off-range uh, tag. Um, but some of the things that he talked about, he said, one, like the terrain is just so incredibly rough. And like he described the vehicle that they took and they had like an air compressor with them and tire patches and that type of thing. Was the stuff on the range, like were the roads a little better or did y'all still had to kind of like be prepared for that type of stuff? That's a great question, John. And it is the on the range hunt is you don't need to be nearly as prepared with all that stuff. Um, first of all, you're driving on gravel roads and a lot of them are paved roads. So you're driving on these roads and you know, you can't get off the road. You can't, you know, see some oryx a mile off with the spotting scope, hop off and just make your own trail. You can use established dirt roads mm -hmm. and there are quite a bit of those that go certain areas. But, um, as far as that goes, you're on the, the pavement or gravel you know, there's some trails we got on that were a little rough and there is a chance you could pop a tire. So I had a, a spare, but I didn't have a compressor or anything like that. And you're only allowed on the range from, you know, pretty much, I don't remember the time exactly, but let's, let's say 9am until you have to be off the range at 6pm, which means checking out. Mm -hmm. And I drew a red Canyon hunt I got expanded into Rhodes Canyon because they were doing some military drills. So they closed part of Red Canyon and opened up some of Rhodes Canyon uh, and basically expanded our hunting area. But um, yeah, that off, off range hunt, if you're hunting public land, it's a lot easier to draw, but it is a lot more demanding. The oryx are hunted a lot harder. Well, they're hunted hard either way, but it, it's a harder hunt in general. Gotcha. So yeah, when you were talking about road hunting, I guess it, it, it really is a road hunt, so, which I guess makes sense because they don't want you just walking off and sipping on a, you know, missile or something that hadn't exploded. So gotcha. So not quite as crazy that way. Um, when you're doing this hunt, like, and I guess, uh, I thought of this question before you talked about the road hunting stuff, but I mean, do you try to like think about the wind and stuff like that? Or do you just kind of driving around and, and glassing? So my first hunt that I went on, uh, the guy that I have, he's actually become a friend. He works on the White Sands Missile Range, and he's basically builds missiles for the U.S. government. And um, ended up just knowing he knew very well where the oryx were, and it was more, you know, we'd drive, we'd stop, we'd glass, we'd drive, we'd stop, we'd glass. We'd see a good group, and we'd be like, all right, we're gonna make a move on this group. So me and the guide would go make a move, try to stalk these orcs, paying attention to the wind, which way they're moving, try to get in front of them because they're always moving. And our buddies in the truck would be glassing us from the truck and watch. And uh, on my oryx, uh, we were working a group. And <laughs> basically there was a nice group out in front of us, about 250 yards with six bulls in it. And I ended up shooting and missing and these oryx take off running the opposite way. And my buddies go off and, you know, sort of get in front of them with the truck on the road. And so they see the truck and turn around and start coming back towards us. And, you know, we try to make a move to, to get in front of them again. Wasn't successful, but uh, it was a lot more on that hunt. Spot and stalk, um, you know, spot them from the road, make a move, try to get a shot where... I went on a broken horn hunt last year 
and that was more we're driving around and we probably saw four or 500 oryx that day and you're trying to find one with a broken horn where one of the horns is 40 percent or more broke i think it's 40 percent. don't quote me on that and that was more find the oryx and then make a move on it where my once in a lifetime was you know you could have popped out in the first if you're one of the first trucks in there you could have drove in hopped out of the vehicle and you know, just stepped off the road and, and shot one within the first 10 minutes of the hunt where it took us two days and it's a three day hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of different ways to do it. And some people might say, you know, that road hunting, that's, that's not my thing. And it wasn't mine either until I got to experience it this past year. And it is just like old school South Dakota road hunting where you see them and a lot of times they might be in range. You pop out of the car, hop off the road, load the gun and get a shot off. But then a lot of times it's a lot more work. Um, yeah. So it, it varies how you, how you do it and how you want to approach it, but it's however you want to do it. You can do it that way. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Well, any more on the, on the orcs or you want to move on to the next one? Well, I'd say the one downside about the Oryx and New Mexico in general, like I said, they don't have a point system, but you can do these hunts. There's so much public land. And like I said, there's no point system. So you could put in your first year and you could draw your once in a lifetime Oryx, barberry sheep like I did. I also drew elk and a deer that year. I wasn't successful on the elk and the deer, but ended up shooting a nice sheep. And the only downside is as a a resident or non-resident, as a non-resident, they're going to charge your card when you apply for that tag. So, um, for example, my brother, he lives in Tulsa, and this year he put in for uh, Bighorn, Oryx, Elk, Barberry, Sheep, and Ibex, and I think they charged his card $4,000, <laughs> um, which is a lot of money. And, yeah, yeah he, he went after a lot of species. And then after the application period closes – usually a couple months later they'll close the draw and anything you don't draw that money goes right back onto your card and so he didn't draw anything um so as a non-resident it can get expensive but you're looking at you know several hundred dollars for the tag even bighorn sheep i think is around a grand uh same with oryx probably about seven eight hundred bucks out of state but you get that money back if you don't get drawn so Maybe don't put in right when the application opens. Do your research. See which canyons have higher draw odds. I picked Red Canyon because it was a higher draw odd. My hunt was in the spring. I think it was March. Um, And it had one of the highest draw odds where, you know, you could do one of the harder to draw canyons and um, do it in the fall where your draws aren't aren't as probable. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing about those orcs is they hunt them year round. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for anybody listening who's thinking, "Oh man, what if I draw all of them?" The chances of you drawing all you know all those tags in one year as a non-resident probably pretty slim. And so there's a very good chance you're going to get most of that four thousand dollars back. Yeah, I mean, my brother he got all of his back. I put in for every species as a resident because it was before I moved, mm-hmm. and I just drew. Um, what did I draw this past year? I drew deer in a not so good of a unit because I thought I was going to be living out there when I drew it and just wanted to draw it. And then I drew, um, what else was it? Uh, no, it was just deer. Yeah. So chances of you drawing it aren't, aren't high, but you know what? It's 
just as high as everybody else putting in. And my buddy up in Alaska, he drew his first year. I had another buddy, he drew his first year. And then I have other buddies that, who have been putting in 10 years and still haven't drawn. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, it's, you're not going to draw it if you don't try. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And it is, it is such a fun hunt. I mean, I, I just enjoy going on it. Just mm-hmm. seeing these, these freaking African animals that are, you know, brought here from Africa that are running wild in New Mexico. This isn't a high fence hunt. I mean, there's no fences. They can go what they want, where they want, do what they want. It is as true to going to Africa, which is on the bucket list, but I haven't been as anywhere you could ever imagine. It's not like going to a high fence, you know, a couple thousand acre ranch in Texas and shooting one. It's mm-hmm. extremely different. You'll see hundreds of oryx a day. And yeah, you might see groups of, you might see singles, groups of three, four, five. And then I think some of our bigger groups, there's upwards of 80 oryx in a group. That sounds awesome. What was the what was the terrain like? So it is it is desert, and then basically the missile range. It's like I said, thirty two thousand square miles around there, thirty two hundred. Excuse me, thirty two hundred, and it's desert. There's you know ravines, valleys. There's shrubbery, not many trees. You know, desert, southwest desert land. And it's funny, you could be working these oryx and see them a mile away and then you get close and it's amazing how these big animals can just disappear. Even inside, you know, I think mine, I, I shot it and didn't make a great shot and we're working, stalking, trying to get close to it. And this animal, even inside a hundred yards, we'd see it, we'd hop down a ravine, hop back up and it's gone. Like these animals can disappear out there. So it's uh, a lot of cactus, you're watching out for rattlesnakes and yeah just desert terrain and then you got mountains on one side of the range or actually both sides but you know you might see these oryx down in the the desert plains or you could see them you know partially way up in in some of these desert mountains gotcha sounds sounds pretty dang sweet to me honestly um well you you got any more on the orcs you want to move on I mean, I'd just say it's a hunt that everybody should be putting in for. I already drew my once in a lifetime, so I don't care if you guys put in for it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I think it's a hunt that you can go out, do it yourself, shoot an oryx and not have any any issues getting one. The question is whether you're shooting a 28-inch cow or a 38-inch bull like I shot is a, a big difference and pretty tough to judge. Um but it's it's a hunt that, you know, being from the Midwest, not having $10,000 to go over to Africa and do the same hunt over there, it's something that if you're into big game hunting, and not only that, the meat is phenomenal. I, I like elk meat, and I think it's way better than elk meat. It's just dark, clean, and one of the, I think, the best wild game I've ever had. That's awesome. Always a major plus. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, so you also got to do a, a Barbary sheep? Yep. So the Barbary sheep, that was also in New Mexico, and that's a little bit south from where you do um, the Oryx hunt, but it was public land hunt. Uh, the Barbary sheep was was awesome. I mean, it's uh, we, were, we were hunting, um, you know, I don't want to say exactly where we're hunting, but it's, <laughs> it's okay. also desert desert mountains but more elevation um 
So, you know, you're spotting glasses, spotting glasses, spotting glasses. And the first weekend we went out there, that hunt, it was also in March of, uh, shoot, it would have been March of last year. And we were hunting the first day and it was, you know, 65 degrees and sunny. The next day we wake up to six inches of snow and we can't access a lot of the area we wanted on that hunt. It's, you know, pretty steep terrain. You can do it with a truck. There's a lot of established roads and you'll, you might see them from the road, not like the works. You're usually getting out, hiking up to a vantage point, glassing, moving, glassing, moving, glassing. And it's a, a very fun hunt, but definitely more, more physical as far as, you know, not only hiking, but also finding the game takes a lot, lot longer to do. Um, you can shoot Rams. I shot a 29 inch Ram. Uh, you can shoot, uh, ewes, which are females don't have as big of antlers. And then you can also shoot kids, I think on some of the tags, which is, you know, they might call them nannies and kids, but, uh, yeah, you can shoot them all on certain tags and then others might be just, um, you know, the, uh, the males only, but, uh, I also, not knowing what I was doing there, hired a guide for that hunt. And luckily, um, that second day when we got snowed in, he basically looked at the, the calendar and said, you know, next week's going to be perfect. Let's just, you know, pick this up next week. Come on out here. I won't charge you anything extra. So came out the next week and yeah, much better weather and no more snow on the ground. I think we were hunting in seven, mid seventies weather. And uh, it does help to have an ATV, mm-hmm. but again, it is not necessary. There are a lot of guys, most guys, I'd say even New Mexico locals will just be doing the same sort of thing, road hunting. But if you get out of your vehicle and, you know, hike up, you know, half mile up the hill where you can look over the backside where there's no roads, your chances are going to be exponentially higher of shooting on. And, you know, this Western big game hunting, I'm used to sitting in a tree stand and, you know, popping a deer inside 100 yards with my 270 or 30-06. Mm-hmm. Uh, this requires a little bit more skill where I think I shot mine at 380 or about 400 yards. Mm-hmm. And I was shooting about, the angle was, you know, I'm sitting down on the ground and shooting at 45 degrees up the hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is more challenging the shooting. Um, but again, uh, that tag is significantly less expensive, a lot higher draws than an Oryx. And it's one that's just fun where, you, you know, you've never done it before. And unless you're going to, I don't know, uh, Africa, I don't know where else you can hunt wild, uh, barberry sheep. Mm-hmm. Unless you're going to Texas and most of that's high fence anyways. Yeah. What about, especially for this one, uh, what about like, I guess just the physical aspect, like, did you feel like you needed to, you know, exercise and get into shape for this hunt or was it not so bad? So I, I'm in decent shape. I, I should have probably worked out a little bit more, uh, just cause you are hiking quite a bit. The pack out was the hardest part. We probably had to take it, you know, we had to probably hike in a mile and a half to get it. So I shot it in the evening, right at sunset, um, shot it, like I said, about 400 yards away on the side of a mountain and <laughs> couldn't go get it that night. 
it's dark, we go back, you know, that night you can't sleep. You're wondering if it's dead or not. And yeah, go back out there the next morning, hike all the way up there. And where I shot it, it rolled over this ridge. So you could see it and it, I hit it and it went to the backside. And I knew I hit it, but I knew I hit it a little far back. And this thing tumbled probably 40 yards and stopped on a cactus that's probably three inches around. And on the other side of that cactus, if that cactus wasn't there, this thing would have rolled 200 yards straight down the sheer cliff mm -hmm. and probably landed on a ledge that we couldn't, couldn't have got at. Mm -hmm. So it is a, a physical hunt and the better shape you are in, the easier it's going to be, the further you can go and the more animals you'll see and probably get a shot at. Mm -hmm. The The challenging part for me is um, just glassing, you know, the more eyes, the better. Mm -hmm. And just being able to pick these, these sheep out from, you know, a mile away is, is a little challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about, you, you mentioned like the shooting aspect. What about that? Did you feel like you needed to prepare? Did you like, did you buy a new gun because you knew you'd be shooting further? Did you stick with your old, old trusty? Uh, what about the shooting aspect of it? So I did buy a 300 Win mag when I moved out to New Mexico, cause I knew I would be doing some of these, these longer range shooting and, and, you know, having hunts where you're shooting further distances. And, uh, yeah, I was practicing a lot, getting ready, you know, to make those five, 600 yard shots. If I had to, I, I think I told myself 500 was about my range, but you know, if there's a, a trophy out at 600, I'm not going <laughs> to not take a poke at it, uh -huh. but I'd say, you know, I had a shot at a, a small Ram the first day at a hundred yards. So it's all very subjective. on you know, where you see them, a lot of times you might see them on the side of a sheer cliff where you can do whatever you can do, but you're not going to get to that, that ram. There's no way. And even if you did shoot it, chances of are that you can retrieve it extremely low. Gotcha. So it's not necessarily also just for just if you can hit it, it's can you get it back after you hit it? Yeah, and that's the same thing. I know uh, in New Mexico, Steve Ranella, I think, I'm not a big fan of the guy. I think he does great stuff for hunting, but he's exposed a lot of stuff that I'd maybe rather not have <laughs> millions yeah. of people know about. But uh -huh. um, I know a couple guys that have done the Ibex hunt that he did in the Florida mountains in New Mexico, and they've shot um, some nice, nice Ibex that they have to hire a guy to come in and rappel down mm. to retrieve um, retrieve that Ram and it's, it's not cheap. I want to say, you know, you're looking 500 bucks just to have some guy repelled down and retrieve it. And that's if you can find somebody to do it. Yeah. Hmm. Man, that's crazy. That's crazy. Hmm. Sounds like an awesome hunt though. That's, that's another critter. <laughs> Pretty much everything we're going to talk about is on my list. You know, I'd love to do all these hunts. And that's part of the reason I was so excited to have you on was to talk about this stuff. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, anything else with that that like you know sticks out to you? Not really. I mean, I just think New Mexico in general is is a sleeper state just because it's one of I think three states that doesn't have a point system. So mm -hmm. you know, if you've got the money where you can float, you know, the tag for you know a couple months where that money is in limbo, mm -hmm. um, it's a great great state to draw you know i've hunted elk there and 
probably one of the best units in the state and it was phenomenal it was uh september rut is buddy's tag and it's um it was weird if when we got to where we were hunting that was another physical one we'd hike in seven miles to where we were really hunting but it was weird if you went 30 seconds without hearing a bugle and you know we're seeing we saw multiple 400 inch elks that that hunt Mm -hmm. um i said multiple two or three which is still you know big elk but um if you've got the uh if you've got the, the drive and the time, because it might take a few years, you're like my buddy, you might get it your first year. That's awesome. The antelope is also phenomenal. I shot a nice uh, nice pronghorn last year. Mm-hmm. And from here, I mean, from I live in Oklahoma City, you can get to the New Mexico border in five hours, less than five hours. And, you know, there's hunting land right there where you can be shooting antelope, you can be shooting muleys. Uh, we're here in our state, you know, it could take you a long, long, long time to draw that antelope tag. Yeah. Yeah. So I've actually done a New Mexico antelope hunt. Uh, a guy I went to high school with, his mom was from New Mexico and they have a place, his grandparents still live there. And, uh, we were able to get landowner tags for an antelope hunt up there. Um, and then nice. the, the only guided hunt I've ever been on was in New Mexico. Uh, a different high school buddy of mine we went on a, a bear hunt up there. And uh, it turned out to be the worst bear season in New Mexico history. We we, <laughs> we didn't even see one. Um, we were talking to get. We were doing spot and stock, but we were running into other guides that were running dogs, and even the guys with dogs were saying they couldn't find any. Um, but the thing that really stuck out to me on that bear hunt was, yeah, the elk. I mean, we saw elk everywhere, and of course, our guide. You know, he all he's, his main thing was guiding elk, and you know, he kind of did bear on the side. Um, and, uh, but, you know, he was just so giddy every time we saw elk. Uh, and yeah, one evening we came down and there was a bull with his little harem there and he, he was a monster. I've hunted Idaho a bunch for elk. Um, but New Mexico, I mean, yeah, it, it, it blew that away. Just the numbers was, was amazing. It, it really is. And man, I'll tell you what, there's nothing like hearing a bugle or just seeing those big elk and just the numbers of them like you said it's it's phenomenal but that bear bear sounds pretty interesting i uh i shot a bear last year in alaska but i've never really chased them at out in new mexico at all but i know it is a, a tougher hunt for sure yep yep uh yeah we've uh i went on that and then a few years ago my brother and i we were on a, a lease here in oklahoma that actually had a bunch of bears on it so oklahoma has a lot more bears than most people realize i think even i think even more than most oklahomans realize that's what i've heard and i'm you know i've only lived here a couple months but i hear southeast oklahoma mm-hmm. you know what's the mountain range on there i've heard there's quite a few of them yep yep there are there are so we our place is just south of there, but we can be there in no time, and uh, that's something I've been looking into again. So, uh, um, do you want to tell your your elk story real quick? Uh, yeah, I'll tell it. So, um, I won't get into too much of the details, but we were in an area that's um, pretty high concentration of elk, very high actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the residency draw rate, I want to say, is like one and a half, two percent. Non-resident is like 0.5 percent mm-hmm. and my buddy drew it the first year and he uh he'd never hunted elk i'd hunted elk once unsuccessfully when i was living in utah and you know we it was basically me him and a buddy 
and we're camping, you know, doing it cheap as possible. This was a DIY hunt. Mm-hmm. And so we hike up this mountain and, um, basically we wake up three hours before sunrise, start hiking. And, you know, we're put on 10 plus miles a day. And so we'd get up to the, the top of this mountain. It sort of bowls on both sides and the elk would funnel up as it heats up during the day in September. And so we were hunting bulls as they were coming up the mountain and depending on the wind, we were playing which side of the mountain. And he, uh, the first day he ended up, uh, falling when we were hiking up in the dark and didn't tell anybody. And so the first elk we have, you know, these things are bugling nonstop. We're doing cow calls, bugling, and, uh, basically just, you know, have the shooter out and the guy calling cow calls or bugling 30 yards behind him. And the first bull first day was a nice six by six, not a huge six by six, but a nice six by six comes in and we're actually hunting next to each other at that time before his buddy got there. And it's just me and him. And this bull is at, I'd say seven yards and, and is just bugling all the way in, you know, wraps around us and he smells us and just stops seven yards away. And it just, it felt like a lifetime. We were sitting there and the bull runs off. And I said, Ryan, why didn't, why didn't you shoot it? And he goes, I, I didn't know what to do. It was so close. <laughs> and it, it really was just having that bull that close. Uh-huh. Um, and then the next day, you know, had another bull come in. This was uh, a big seven by seven and it's about 30 yards. I'm about 20 yards behind him. He draws on it and releases the arrow and just hear a thing. And there's one branch sticking out on this tree and the arrow stuck right in that one branch and he missed that one. So that was, that was a killer. Um, later that day, he gets a shot of another big six by six bull, 35 yards, broadside, beautiful shot. And the arrow goes just right over the back of it. And so at this point I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what's wrong. You're right on it. He said he was right on it. And, you know, we knew something was off. So we go out of where we were hunting and our buddy had a block and shoot his bow. And of course it's shooting about foot and a half high at 30 yards. And, uh, when he fell, he should have said something. He's new to bow hunting mm-hmm. and, um, you know, should have said something, but we ended up hunting hard the next day. And he ended up shooting a, a five by five that was honestly one of the smaller bulls that we saw that mm-hmm. trip. But he's not a trophy hunter. He was just happy to have the meat. And we ended up packing some of it out that night. Like I said, it was me, him, his buddy. And uh, he had a plan to have actually guys come in on horses. He was going to pay a guy, I think, about, oh, I forget what the price was. I want to say like eight or 900 bucks to come pack out the meat. And we can't get a hold of this guy we had set up to come pack out the meat. So that night we took a load. And we didn't have cell service, so we take what we could, you know, he took the the antlers and the cape and I ended up taking, you know, one of the quarters and uh, his buddy took some of the, you know, back straps, neck meat, and we hold the rest up in a tree. And then that evening couldn't get a hold of the guy. And so we had to hike in, I think it was seven miles from our camp one way. So yeah, we'd have to hike in seven miles and then out seven miles uh, that day. And that was not including the, the hunting miles. And then the next day, it was pretty much a direct seven miles in to get the bull and seven miles out. And 
took sunrise to sunset. Mm, I bet. I bet. Golly, that sounds terrible. I've been a part of two elk pack outs, and uh, the first one wasn't too bad. The elk was down close to the creek, a pretty decent trail. Uh, the second one, uh, it was our last day, and actually half there, I think there was five of us on that hunt, and three of us didn't hunt because we had gotten sick. Um, and, uh, my buddy Ryan and Jasper went out and Ryan shot a bull. And so they came back like, Hey, what did y'all's help? Like got one down. And we all thought they were joking. And then he turns around. We see he had carried out like one of the front quarters or something. And so, uh, the three of us sick guys, we help, you know, bundle up. And of course it starts snowing on us as soon as we start walking. And, um, and they had dropped us a pin on a map. I think this was before Onyx. We had we had downloaded okay. some kind of free like topo map thing, and he dropped us a a point on it. And I mean, it was at the very very top. And so we're we're all sick hiking straight up a mountain in the snow, and we finally found it. And you know we got it down. There was enough of us that it wasn't too terrible. And it, it wasn't that far. It was probably I'm going to say two miles, something like that. But it was just, Idaho is steep, and it was just straight up at the very top. And being sick and covered in snow, it was not a fun experience. But I don't know, I'd almost take that over seven miles each way. Well, the the thing was, this seven miles, there's a trail for, mm. we ended up finding a road that mm. we couldn't drive down, but there was an established road. So five of those seven miles were just on a, a gravel road, essentially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely a, an experience and a fun hunt, but holy crap, you know, being sitting in a deer stand in Kansas and pulling up a ATV to load the deer in uh-huh. a lot different than these, these Western hunts. And that one, I was, I was sucking wind. I was struggling for I sure. Bet. I bet. Uh, well, cool, man. Well, uh, it sounds like as of late, you've been getting into some, some international hunting and I want to talk about that too. Uh, so I think you got two of them you want to talk about. I'll let you pick which one first. Yeah. So these are probably two of the most fun and greatest hunts I've ever gone on that, you know, I grown up as a kid, you'd watch outdoor life network and see these guys going and hunting ducks and in South America and doves in Argentina. And I was fortunate enough to, to get to do both of those this year. Um, in January, I actually ended up going to Nicaragua. My buddy who I went on the Oryx hunt last year, the broken horn hunt, um, I took care of them when he came down and, you know, picked them up from the airport. And we took my truck and all that. And he's like, hey, Eric, I, I want to invite you on this Nicaragua duck hunt. And I said, that sounds awesome. And I don't know why I wouldn't go. So uh, the plan was, I think it was January 1, we were going to fly – um, down to Nicaragua into Managua, the capital. And from there, the guy would pick us up, take us to Chinandega, where we'd be lodged up and hunt from. And uh, I get down to um, Managua and I turn my phone on and I'm calling my buddies. There's supposed to be five of us and none of them can come. And I was like, why, why can't you guys come? I don't understand this. Well, they made us take a RT-PCR uh, COVID test to get down to Nicaragua. And they required that it had to be before 72 hours or within 72 hours of you arriving. And if you remember at that time, there was a shortage of COVID tests around Christmas time. Uh-huh. 
And so a couple of these guys couldn't get the RT or PCR test. Uh, they could get the other test that, you know, wasn't the RT PCR, but they couldn't get the RT PCR. And the other couple guys, it had to have a doctor's signature on the test and it had to have a lab stamp, a certified lab, like 3d raised stamp. And so they couldn't get that. And I'm there in Managua by myself and my buddies say they won't let us board the plane to get down there. Mm. Um, so the, uh, this was another one that was a guide and it was less expensive than I thought. Um, I think it was around three grand for, you know, three days of hunting, six hunts. Um, and the guide picked me up, took me to Chinandega. They put me up in this lodge and, uh, he told me, he's like, we're expecting five of you, you know, um, this is the first time we've ran this operation for, for less than four people. Mm. And so it was a cool experience just being in Nicaragua, which is very poor country. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, for example, even from when I got picked up at the airport, uh, the, the hotel, it was actually a hotel I was staying at. Um, the guy's driving out there and he goes, we need to make a stop. And he's on his phone talking Spanish and pulls over and, uh, picks up a cop. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? This cop hops in the back seat. And he's like, I was like, is it that dangerous here? And he's like, no, 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 it's not that dangerous. It's just that guns are very heavily regulated in Nicaragua. And so I hire this cop who's off duty to come out and he goes out and, uh, basically is on these hunts just in case the government comes after us and asks for the the license and paperwork for the guns. He handles all that. Hmm. Um, I guess there was some government issues there a few years ago and, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just made it a lot trickier. But when I got to the lodge, uh, the way we did it with it just being me, I, I did three hunts in the morning. So I'd wake up at about 3 a.m. They'd have, you know, plantains and rice and fruit and all this stuff for breakfast waiting for me. And then we'd take, uh, took a 15 passenger shuttle with me, the guide and the driver about 10 minutes down the road. We'd hop out and we'd hike maybe five minutes, me and the guide to a guy on a riverboat and his son. And, uh, son was maybe, I don't know, eight, nine, and they'd take me five minutes across this river. We'd get out, hike another 10 minutes, and they just had a fleet of three or four fan boats, air boats, waiting there, and hop on the fan boat, and it's me, the guide, who is staying at the hotel with me, the bird boy, which is, I say bird boy, he was a bird man, he was probably like 40, 50, and the uh, the driver of the fan boat, and They'll take you anywhere from, I think the closest spot was about 10 minutes. The furthest spot was probably 30 and they're hauling ass in the span boat and pitch black and the bird boys got a spotlight and they're, you know, looking for, you know, brush debris, everything. And you're just seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of birds flush while we're driving at night. And they get to the spot and they put down a, a wooden, not a blind it's a stand it's basically a wooden table that's maybe five feet by five feet and they stick it in the marsh where it's sitting right above the water and the bird boy doesn't speak the best english uh says i'll be right back and he goes off and goes and gets a bunch of uh you know brush cattails and sets up this blind 
around you. And it's just you and the bird boy at this point, the sand boats taken off, you hear him go off, turn it off and park. And he's setting up this blind around you. The sun's starting to come up. Um, he throws out about a dozen decoys and you're just sitting on this piece of wood as the sun's coming up, looking at an active smoking volcano <laughs> and there's just birds flying everywhere. And it is, it's too dark to shoot yet. And, uh, keeps getting lighter and lighter and still not light enough to shoot here. You know, you can't shoot, mm-hmm. um, till half an hour before sunrise here. Mm-hmm. And he's telling me to shoot probably like 45 minutes, maybe an hour before sunrise. He's like, go, go right there, right there. And you're just hearing these birds whistle and all around you just, it's, it's mostly teal, um, pintails, some shovelers, and then you're shooting a lot of, um, black bellied whistling ducks, which are pretty, pretty cool, unique duck. Mm-hmm. And the limit each day is 200 shells. Huh. And so, yeah, it's not, not a bird limit. It's 200 shells. Yeah. Most, most people do it where they'll hunt and shoot a hundred shells in the evening, a hundred in the afternoon uh-huh. with it just being me. They wanted to, you know, save a little money on their end. And I was shooting 200 shells in the morning. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, out of these 200 shells, I was probably shooting about 80 to 90 ducks, <laughs> uh, which I thought was good. Yeah. Uh, starting to talk to some of these, these guys, they're saying there's guys who shoot, you know, upwards of 175 birds out of 200 shells. Mm. Yeah. It and so like that was, birds. you can be, uh, you can be pretty picky with your shot. <laughs> You can, and honestly, you could go out there and shoot your, your 200 shells in probably 10 minutes, wow. or you could go out and shoot it in three hours, uh-huh. uh, four hours. But I was, I think it was taking about an hour and a half for me to shoot my, my 200 shells. And I was being a little more selective, mm-hmm. a lot of pass shots on teal. Um, it's not like here, these big mallards, you know, where uh-huh. they're decoying, they're circling and circling and working you. These are a lot of pass shots. Yeah. And so that was cool. Uh, at the end of the hunt, they leave all the birds out there. And when you're done with your 200 shells, the bird boy gets on the, the walkie and says, uh, alle, 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 which means let's go, let's go, let's go. And the, the fan boat comes back and the bird boy is picking out, picking up all these ducks, the fan boat and the guide will start picking them up too. And out of these, you know, 90 ducks I'd shoot, they'd probably recover about 70, 75 percent and uh there's some ducks that would land right behind us in these you know tall cattails weeds and i'd say how come you go don't go get those ones and the the bird boy goes lots of anacondas lots of anacondas (laughs) yeah so uh (laughs) it was it was very cool to do and um after the hunt you know you hop on the boat and go back to uh where they drop or you loaded the boat and we'll go over to the river boat to take you over to where the river boat is. And then you get off the boat and all the local villages are there. Villagers are there with their kids and they're collecting these ducks. They want the ducks to eat just cause you know, that's a source of food for them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, the bunch of kids are usually there. Usually they say there's anywhere from 50 to a hundred people for, these hunts. My buddy has been doing it or friend of a friend has been doing it 20 plus years. And he says, usually there's, you know, 50 to a hundred people asking for these ducks and the kids are giving the 
kids candy. You buy candy there and give the kids candy because they can't afford that. Um, but for me, there's only like, I don't know, eight to 10 people. And I said, why is there so few? And they said, oh, they hear there's only one gringo hunting, not worth the time. <laughs> but yeah, it was just a cool hunt, just shooting that many ducks in that short of a time where you're looking at an active smoking volcano. Um, the only pity was I was by myself. It would have been yeah. if my five other buddies would have got their COVID test. It would have been the most fun hunt of my life. And they yeah. usually break you off into groups of two, but yeah. it was still a, a freaking phenomenal hunt and one that, you know, for the, the price once in a lifetime, I probably won't do it again. Mm-hmm. It was, it was worth it. Yeah. Did, uh, did you bring your own gun or did they provide guns? No. So they provide guns. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't, I mean, even my buddies who do these Argentina hunts, uh, they brought their own guns once they got stuck in customs for eight hours. Mm. It's just worth paying the the gun rental fee, which is usually a hundred dollars a day, mm-hmm. um, both in Nicaragua and Argentina and just using their guns, mm-hmm. not only because they have good guns. I mean, you're shooting semi-automatic Benelli's if you want to shoot over under Brownings, they, they have a, a slew of guns. Mm. I was shooting mostly uh, Beretta, excuse me, over or excuse me, semi-automatic 20 gauge Berettas. Mm. And one day, one of my guns wasn't working. It wasn't cycling. And he said, no problem. And grabs another gun and had a brand new gun. So (laughs) yeah, it's worth paying that. And where they get you on these hunts, you know, they might say, you're thinking of all your food and lodging and meals, everything included for those three days, transportation, everything. Is three grand where they get you is the the gun rentals at a hundred dollars a day and the shell bills. I think in Nicaragua I was paying twenty dollars per box of shells mm. and I was shooting eight eight at yeah. some of these bigger ducks yeah. because that's all they can get. So you're shooting pintail shovelers and uh, even some modeled Mexican ducks with eight and yeah it's small shot for a fairly large bird but. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you got. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. Well, we got about 10 minutes left. I want to talk about your dove hunt too. So, uh, let's talk about that one. Yeah. So this is probably the most fun I hunt I've ever been on. Um, basically my brother was at a ducks unlimited auction in 2019. And, uh, I think had a few too many beers to drink. We've all been there, you know, (laughs) and, ended up buying this Argentina dove hunt, all inclusive. Um, they say all inclusive, all inclusive, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turned out for eight people to be 800 bucks a person. So I think he paid 3,600 bucks for it. Mm-hmm. Well, COVID hit and then we couldn't go in 2020, 2021 COVID was still bad. Couldn't go. Finally this year in March, we ended up going and, it was him, me, one of my best hunting buddies growing up that I've been friends with since I was five. Uh, my mom, dad, one of their friends, couples, and uh, another guy who's one of our friends. And so eight of us total, $800, and it was five stars. Like we have two, three chefs. We have, you know, three, four people watching the house. We have the guides. Everybody has their own bird boy. 
um, and it was just five stars. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, we, we flew into Buenos Aires, and from there took a, a flight to Cordoba, which is about, I don't know, hour flight, maybe a little more. And they pick us up, take us to the lodge. Uh, actually, excuse me, they picked us up in Cordoba and took us straight in the field. So we're still wearing the clothes I've been wearing for the past 16 hours to get down there. <laughs> and we change in the field. And these dove hunts are incredible because it's as much as you want to shoot. It is nonstop. And uh, that first evening hunt, you know, I think I shot around 240 doves, which, Gosh. you know, for us sounds like a lot, but, um, honestly, it's, it's nothing crazy. I could have shot a lot more than that. Um, but while you're, you're hunting, you know, you're with one other person, a hunting buddy, I was with my brother and you each got a bird boy and then they put a little, almost like a tea torch next to you, but it's a, a beer holder. So, you're literally shooting and then, you know, taking beers in between these doves flying by. And after every time you get done shooting, you lean over and the bird boy reloads your gun for you. Hmm. And so, so it is, it, it's nonstop action and the bird boy has a counter and he's counting how many doves you shoot. I'm like, uh, one of those little clickers they use when you're going into a store or sporting bench or something, hmm. counting the people that are coming in. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, the coolest hunt I've ever been on. It was, we did four days, six hunts. So it was that first evening, a morning, afternoon, the second day, morning, afternoon, the next and the morning, the final day. And, uh, after you get done hunting in the morning, um, you go back to, they'll have like a, a tent set up, white tablecloth, wine, you know, all this food and just five stars and uh they have a chef and he's cooking over an open flame and they're just cooking all sorts of meat open up as much wine as you want and you just drink and eat just meat 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 (laughs) that's my kind of of table right there yeah i mean this this lunch would go on for hour hour and a half of just them bringing all these different cuts of meat short ribs bacana uh you know, everything around that you could imagine and chorizo, uh, just all this amazing food that's just cooked right there in front of, in front of you guys over a fire. And then afterwards they have cots set up under the shade and you go lay down, taking, you know, hour, hour and a half nap and they wake you up with a, a beer, a glass of wine and time for the evening hunt. And you go out and do the same thing before going back to the lodge for, a five-star dinner and you're shooting um, a lot of morning doves, uh, some white wing doves, and then you're shooting. Some people are probably not going to be happy about this parakeets. Hmm. Um, yeah. They're, they're a nuisance down there. Just beautiful green parakeets that are as gorgeous as you'd see in any pet store. Huh. You're, you're shooting those. And uh, then a lot of pigeons, just big pigeons. Hmm. And it's, it's a hunt that, you know, it's affordable. You can get it through an auction like my brother did, where it was $800. Um, I will warn you guys, there are some other things that they'll try to get you with. So this one, we were paying $16 and 50 cents for a box of shells. Um, and then you're paying a hundred dollars a day for a gun rental. 
and then I think your licenses and land tags were $200 total for the, the three, four days. Yeah. Um, so you could do it cheap if you're only shooting a few boxes a day. Or uh, I think my buddy, he one day shot 2,000 doves. Wow. And so, yeah, you think of that's morning and evening hunt. You think of shooting 2,000 doves, let's say, you know, that's 3,000 shells at mm-hmm. 16 bucks a box that mm. that can add up pretty quick yeah wow man <laughs> uh it's one of those things though it's like man you you go to all this trouble you pay all this money to get down here you don't necessarily want to limit yourself too much but uh yeah i don't know if i'm i don't know if i'm dishing out i, I don't know if my shoulder could take that honestly I mean, that, that was the thing too. So I was wearing a shooting pad mm-hmm. and I was wearing a shooting vest that also had a built-in pad. So I was wearing two pads and, uh, I didn't get sore. The last day I took my pad off for the last hunt I was fine. But, um, one of these guys who, uh, was with us his first day ends up shooting a 12 gauge mm-hmm. and not wearing a pad and gets like 150 shells into it and says, I'm, I'm done, you know? And they're like, you want a 20 gauge? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm done for today. <laughs> so yeah, shoot the 20 gauges and definitely buy a shoulder pad and uh-huh. maybe a vest with a built-in shoulder pad too. But it's, it's a hunt that it's once in a lifetime and it was phenomenal and you can do it in an affordable way where you buy your tickets in advance, get the hunt at an auction and, you know, watch what you're spending there. You're not getting massages every day for you know, 70 bucks a massage or, um, my dad, he got, he got tricked or my mom, excuse me. She did a load of laundry one day at the lodge mm-hmm. and they charged her, uh, $3 and 50 cents per item that they washed. Mm. <laughs> so watch out for stuff like that. When you yeah. get to these lodges, they'll have a book that has like suggested tip amounts and stuff in there. Read that whole book before, uh, <laughs> before you do anything, but it is yeah. five stars and it was worth every penny. I wouldn't, wouldn't trade that for the world. Yeah. Mm, man. Sounds like a dream. All those, all those are on the list. So, uh, I did have one question that I forgot to ask earlier. Uh, you mentioned like on your orcs hunt that if you did it again, you would not hire a guide. What about on the Barbary sheep hunt? If somebody draws that, would you suggest a guide? Well, that one I would just because, I mean, it depends. If you do your research before, you know, you're dialed into your computer, you're looking at where you want to hunt, um, you don't need one on, on either, uh, to be honest. But I enjoy going on these hunts so much that if somebody did draw one and wanted or allowed me to tag along, I would absolutely go on one of these oryx hunts. And as far as the, the sheep hunts, I'd, I'd be willing to help them out and probably tag along too, depending when it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they rut in like July or August when it's 110 degrees out mm-hmm. in Southern New Mexico. Um, so that one, I might not be as apt to go on if it was somebody going in, you know, March when the weather's very nice, but yeah. it all depends how dedicated you are. I'd say most of my buddies wouldn't. And if I did it again, I wouldn't for either, but you know, if you want to shoot a once in a lifetime and you know, you might not get an opportunity like this, it might be worth the, the 2,500 bucks to hire a guy. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Okay. I just, I, I couldn't remember if we had covered that or not. And, uh, I didn't want to keep anybody guessing. So, 
well, man, any other closing thoughts? Any other tips or tricks or anything like that you need to get out there? No, I just say, you know, these hunts, you can, you can do them in affordable ways and do some of these hunts like Oryx and Barberry or if you're lucky enough to get an Ibex, you know. Unless you're going to fork out $14,000 and go to Iran, you're not going to get to hunt wild Ibex anywhere besides the Florida mountains, New Mexico. So, um, yeah, just it's a numbers game and put in, enjoy it. And if you've got a, got a little extra cash to, to hire a guide on some of these, it might be worth it. And I think, um, these hunts, especially in New Mexico, with it being as close as it is to Oklahoma are way more affordable and realistic than people realize. And, um, I'd be willing to, to help people out, give them information. And if you do your research, you're going to be successful and at the very least have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds awesome, man. You, uh, you definitely have piqued my interest. And so, uh, yeah, I appreciate you being to w- being willing to come on and, and share your knowledge and tell some stories. And, uh, if somebody wants to, you know, maybe have some more questions and want to reach out to you, uh, you want to share maybe your social media pages or something? Yeah, yeah, I have an Instagram and a Facebook. Um, my Instagram is E, like my name is Eric, so E, and then my last name, Bonicelli. That's B-O-N-I-C-E-L-L-I. Or on Facebook, it's just Eric, here I see, Bonicelli, B-O-N-I-C-E-L-L-I. I'd be more than happy to help anybody out. And if somebody does want to do or gets drawn on one of these oryx hunts especially if it's a once in a lifetime i'd be more than happy to go with you just because not even as a hunter i you know hunted them once there and gone along on two others a broken horn and another once in a lifetime that's a hunt that i would be more than happy to to go with you help you out just be be there spotting and be a part of that hunt because it is another one that's just you can't beat it Awesome, man. Well, thank you, Eric, so much for coming on today. Uh, thanks again for sharing all your knowledge, and I hope you have a really good rest of your day. Yeah, thanks, John. It was good talking to you, and, yeah, I hope to stay in touch. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. All right, thanks. That's it for this week, folks. Thank you, Eric, for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. Some really, really exciting hunts. Man, those South America hunts sound really, really cool. I'm not a big world traveler. Uh, but I, I think I could travel to shoot 2,000 doves in one day. So really, really awesome content. Thank you again, Eric, for coming on. Uh, like I said, folks, if you wouldn't mind keeping me and my wife in your prayers as we head towards baby number one, I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you guys for listening to this podcast. I haven't done that in a few weeks, I don't think. Uh, you guys are what make this possible. So I'm about to get out of here. I'm going to fry up some crappie for dinner and then just sit here and wait for my child to be born. So thanks again for tuning in. And until next week, I will see you guys right back here on the Oklahoma Outdoors podcast.